Hello. Hi, how are you? Yeah. Hi. Hi, nice to meet you, Katarina. I'm good. Happy Monday. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to this talk, so. Ah, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. It is officially start or we wait 10 more minutes? Yeah, we have like nine minutes, so um, yeah, okay. we will. I'm just adding the topics and then the paper link. Thank you. And then we have a few minutes. I hope you had a good weekend. Uh, it's Germany is quite cold. I got a little bit cold. So later if I'm sneezing or coughing, <laughs> I hope it's all right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Thomas is here. Hi, Thomas. Huh. You want to join? I'm inviting Hello. you to speak in case you would like to do. Yeah, um, here it's cold too now. I mean, it's still very mild for uh, for this time of the year. At least here in New York, it's very mild. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's I cool. hope it's not COVID. <laughs> so far, it's not COVID. Oh, good. I'm glad. Mm. Yeah, I had a sore throat too yesterday, oh, and no. felt, but um, so far it's also not COVID. So let's fingers crossed. It stays <laughs> Is there a lot of COVID right now in Germany? I don't know. Um, I, don't know I, I mean, last week my best friend just got, so I'm a bit worried. Oh, yeah, I see. Yeah. Yeah, there's this new version, right? Um, yes. That is more aggressive. I mean, the thing is, how many more, like, versions can there be until, you know, um, the virus mm. is kind of becoming weaker? Like, mutations. I'm I not sure. never know. Yeah, you never know. It's like takes forever, never end. Yeah, exactly. Will stay with us. Mm. I agree. So I'm inviting people in, mm -hmm. and um, then I will say on Twitter that we're about to start. And um, yeah, there there's never a time that works for everyone. Yeah, um, sure. so that's why we record the rooms. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, because, but it will. Yeah, the people are really happy that we record these rooms because, um, yeah, they, they like it would be just sad if they couldn't listen to it later on in the day. Hi everyone, we will start in around five minutes. Thank you for coming. Um, we will start by introducing our guest speaker and then um, and then she will be talking about her really interesting research. I think it's, uh, you know, the theories of how inheritance works. 
as being as changing <laughs> which you know people didn't think it would change i guess like with everything so yeah it's just a surprise <laughs> exactly i think that's really interesting so how theories are changing with new discoveries so it's very exciting to talk about these things i think I'm not very familiar with Clubhouse. I, I have never given a talk at here, so it looks quite interesting. Yeah, so yeah, you can relax. It's it's pretty not not formal uh, format and um and people a lot of other rooms and clubs work more that people just talk about something um mm -hmm. and a lot of people don't even know <laughs> what they are talking about so but um i can you know if you're interested in in going to more rooms and clubs i can give you recommendations which ones oh, are that's great a good that's great and um yeah one club that is good for like news related to new technology development and policies around it. If you're also interested in something like that, they moved to Twitter spaces. So it, oh. tech news around the world. It's, it's pretty good tech news. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but here there are good clubs. Another great club is quantum photonics. Then mm -hmm. there's the future brain. And there is, um, a few neuroscience, uh, rooms and clubs with him. He's a neuroscience PhD student at MIT. He has he has pretty interesting rooms related to neuroscience. So, yeah, I think the interesting thing on Clubhouse is that um, you will have people from different backgrounds coming together and discussing a topic and um, the discussions are just, you know, different and, and sometimes really interesting because it's people that usually wouldn't meet at like at the conference or something um, because they are from different fields and discussing a topic. I think that's pretty interesting. So. And um, yeah, of course, during COVID, this app was very popular because um, yeah, you, you don't know, have everyone, to in person. Yeah, <laughs> the meeting was completely impossible. Exactly. <laughs> so a lot of people that were stuck at home would be here all day. Oh, um, I see. <laughs> and <laughs> chatting with people. Um, so. Yeah, it's it like um, in US, the COVID is almost um, there is no regulations for COVID, right? In US, yeah. So it depends which states and and places you are. So the New York City school district still has COVID regulation in place. So only people with vaccine can get into the building, um, uh, and so on. Um, 
but other places have no regulation anymore um so yeah at the doctor's offices here in new york city and you have to wear a mask and um yeah so so it, it really depends on where you are and um where you want to go uh, restaurants and so on they don't ask for vaccines anymore for oh, the card good. yeah it's more official buildings and and doctors offices i think in germany it's also quite released now so but because i'm working in a hospital so they still require the mask vaccination and everything and we still cannot have like in-person lab meetings i mean now our lab meetings are mainly online so. oh, okay so we never have lab meetings oh, yeah my brother he's a he's an essen working in a hospital oh, okay. uh, yeah our my lab meeting I, is like that yeah i didn't ask him actually, so <laughs> thank you for telling me um yeah i grew up in germany so Ah, you are German. My, yeah, I'm Portuguese. I was born there by my uh, stepfather. He's German, and we moved to Germany. So, I see. And um, yeah, so my brothers are still in Germany, and my mother is, you know, my parents are half, half, half time oh, in see. Portugal, half time in Germany, because yeah. you know to see the my brothers and the kids and so on so yeah let's see okay um, I, I, oh yeah, we start please go, no no please go <laughs> ahead just just say what uh, i was just saying uh, i have been in germany for only eight years less than 80 years so not i can i cannot speak german so far oh eight eight years yeah, yeah but... it's a it's a hard language to learn it's yeah. not easy yeah. I think it's very difficult. I was just lucky that I moved as a child. I was in second grade, so eight years old or so. Uh, so it was intuitive learning, right? So it's a different type of learning. There was no German for foreigners class. In Germany. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thrown into school and say, get along and cope with it. <laughs> But it's a very efficient way to learn. You have no Definitely. <laughs> yes, that's true. I, for me, is unfortunately do not have this chance. So yeah, because people speak in experiments only speak yeah. in English. So yeah, they all speak in English with you. So what helped yeah. me a lot is to. So my parents bought me these uh, stories to listen to in German. Uh -huh. And I listened to it apparently all day, and then I just started talking with the story, and apparently I learned it really fast that way. So I don't know if you can watch the TV with subtitle in German, with English uh. subtitle, and then maybe that helps. That's how I learned English also as a kid. Like in Portugal, there was never translated version of the movie was always just English with a subtitle so 
you kind of learn the language that way. Oh, I see. I mean, I grew up in China, and all of our animations or movies are translated to Chinese. So, don't have yeah, exactly. To... Yeah, that's yeah. in Germany same way, right? So that's yeah. why Germans see, are lots good yeah. English speakers generally. I mean, there are a lot of good things, but you know, there are not really a lot of kids that just intuitively. So yeah, maybe you can try it. It worked for me really well, but I was yeah. a kid also, so it's different. <laughs> I think now I wouldn't be able to. <laughs> okay, so um, yeah, welcome everyone. This our sync method of language learning. Yeah, that was with me. And the funny thing is, I learned it really fast, so the teachers would still say, "Oh." She doesn't know uh, German. Uh, you can't expect that from her. And I kind of took advantage for like the first time. <laughs> so. That's good. <laughs> okay. So uh, welcome everyone to Science Society. And of course, a special welcome to you, Yao. And before we start, let me um, introduce our guest speaker, to everyone, and uh, we go from there. So, uh, Dr. Xiao Wang, um, she is an independent PI at the Institute for Genome Stability in Aging and Disease at um, the Research Center of the University of Cologne. And um, she did her bachelor's degree in medicine in China. And uh, she then did her PhD training at the University of Manchester in UK. And uh, later on, her postdoctoral research um, at the um, IGSAD, um, at the research um, CECAD Research Center in Germany. And um, she mostly is interested in her research on epigenetics, um, DNA damage, and aging. And she uses C. elegans as a model organism. And she has um, uncovered role of histone modifications in aging in response to DNA damage and um, also paternally inherited genome instability, which I think is really interesting. Uh, so, uh, really thankful for you to come here and discuss this research with us. It's really an honor. And Thank before you. we start, we conduct like we we do a more interactive, introductive way. Mm -hmm. So, uh, how did you become a scientist? <laughs> like, uh, was it something? Was it a dream of yours, or was it something that came later? maybe something interesting or, or a supportive teacher that guided you to this field? Thank you. I, I think that is a very big question. I mean, I always told um, all my colleagues or on PI, because they are not familiar with Chinese, uh, Chinese environment. I mean, in China, most of the kids, when you ask them what they want to be when they grow up, most of the kids will say they want to be a scientist. <laughs> it becomes like, um, I don't know, a tradition. And when I was a kid, I also gave this answer. <laughs> I don't want to be different from others. But since um, I become a teenager, and then I gain my interest in biology because of, I think, uh, during 
my I'm 13 or 14 years old. And I think I start my interest from the stem cell. I don't know why I'm just attracted to, to this idea about stem cell and then DNA. And then since I start my medical training, when I went to my university, and then I decide to go for more research related instead of clinic related. And uh, I involved in a project, a very small project when I was a bachelor student, which is about um, microRNA and also uh, uh, RNA interference technique. And that is when I start uh, looking at epigenetics. And I wrote a, a very small review in Chinese about this uh, small interference RNA. It's let seven, let seven family when I was uh, in bachelor. And that is actually the beginning of my epigenetic career, I think. And then after I finished my bachelor, I started to apply for a um, PhD program in UK. And when I had my interview with my previous PI, he asked me, what do you want to do in your PhD? I just told him, I want to do epigenetics. I like this field. I think something on top of genetics, because I mean, we know a lot of things about genetics, but there are so many things that can regulate this genetics uh, information on top of it, which we don't know. And um, that basically gave me the motivation um, to go to this direction. And my previous PI in Manchester, he is really impressed. And he even told me this story when I graduate. He said, when I had an interview, he, he's really impressed by what I really, I want, I know what I want to do. And then after I finished my, uh, after I was doing my PhD, I gained the experience on epigenetics, especially histone modification. And I also gained my experience on C. elegans. And that is um, what I plan to like to focus in the future, epigenetics and uh, something. But when I was doing my PhD, it's mainly um, developmental biology. I was also fascinated by that. So that's why I also quite interesting about the embryonic uh, reprogramming and how this um, epigenetic modifications uh, decide the cell fate during embryogenesis. That is also a very interesting question that I feel maybe in the future, I will um, focus on that a bit more. Um, but after I finished my PhD and I joined Beyond Schumacher's lab, uh, as you may see, I'm uh, like a very junior PI. I just get my position last year before I was a postdoc in Beyond Schumacher's lab. And when I joined this lab, uh, Beyond's lab is mainly focused on DNA damage. And that's why I, I told him that I want to bring my background in epigenetics to the DNA damage field and see what's going to happen <laughs> in this combination. And that's how I developed everything. Wow, that is so impressive that um, so early on as a bachelor student, you already found, um, you know, the path or the, the field that you thought was interesting. And, and that you then wrote this paper. That's very impressive, I agree. Yes, <laughs> at that moment, uh, as a bachelor student, writing a review is very rare. So yeah. uh, I feel like that's actually the beginning 
why I interested in with epigenetics is all because of that. For writing that review, I read a lot of paper, read a lot of literatures about epigenetics. I feel like it's a very cool idea. Mm, that was like more than 15 years ago. So was yeah, like, that is yeah. when I really start my interest, I think, to do this. Yeah, and that's really early on also for the field, right? Yeah. Uh, not just for you uh, from the personal perspective, but also for the field to be so early on interested yeah. in, in it and to know already as a bachelor student about the field is, I think, very impressive. So uh, I'm so glad you did and you had the opportunity <laughs> to write because now you make these new discoveries that kind of change our theories about inheritance and and you know many more things you do relevant that are very relevant for aging so uh, i'm so glad and that that you did that and um so for for this specific you know paper mm -hmm. How did you come to study paternal contribution, basically, of epigenetics? And did people believe you? Like, um, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you were surrounded with supportive, um, you know, uh, scientists around you. But when you wrote grants or when you presented this somewhere else, did, did people how did people respond and was it easy to to start this or was it very very tough no it's quite tough i mean uh, i have done my postdoc for seven years as you may see my cv and during the seven years i have conducted three independent projects but this one this uh, paternal transgenerational inheritance one takes longer takes the longest one so the reason why I spent so much time on this because um, first paternal transgenerational inheritance was not a very hot topic and no one really looked at this. And there are very few knowledge about this. And also none of them are studying this in, uh, I mean, very, very few people are working with this in unsay elegance. So I had a lot of difficulties when I was um, performing, uh, conducting this experiment, uh, con uh, conducting this project. But I can tell you a very interesting story is when I joined this lab, I didn't aim to do the transgenerational inheritance project. I mean, my background is epigenetics or histone modifications. And I was interested in how this uh, epigenetic marker are involved in DNA damage in, in aging process that is actually uh, the main project when I start my postdoc. And uh, because I know that the germline, the germ cell are normally quite resistant to DNA damage. They have very nice, very efficient DNA repair machinery. And uh, I didn't really pay too much attention at the beginning of my postdoc. And I didn't really ask the question how this transgenerational inheritance works. I mean, it all starts from a kind of a small accident, not really an accident, but it's not even my accident. I mean, uh, if probably you or um, any of you may know that um, in my lab, in Schumacher's lab, uh, about 80 years ago, our lab published a story also on nature, it was a very nice one. 
defined uh, is a senior postdoc from our lab. Her name is Maria. And she noticed when the germline got DNA damage, it can trigger the somatic uh, to have a resistance phenotype. So the somatics will become more resistant to DNA damage. It's a very interesting phenomenon. And uh, she also published a very nice paper. At that moment, she has conducted a lot of germline DNA damage project. And normally after the DNA damage, she will keep the worm for about one week to observe the somatic resistance. But um, there was once that she forgot to throw, to discard those old plates. And so she left all of these plates in the incubator for more than two weeks. And then once she remembered there are old plates and she before she threw them out, she looked at them under the microscope. And then she noticed one thing is when they gave irradiation, uh, the irradiated plate shows a lot of dead embryo or dead eggs, but in the control plates, there are mainly starving worms or starving larvae. So she thought this um, high embryonic lethality is due to a transgenerational effect of germline DNA damage. And at that moment, I just joined this lab and uh, because I was the only one that have the epigenetic background. So she presented this finding on the lab meeting. And then uh, she think that maybe my epigenetic experience or my epigenetic background can help to, to study, to, to understand this phenotype. And that is where I start when I think about, oh, there could be a potential project. But at that moment, I still focus mainly on my other project, which is how the epigenetic regulate aging in response to DNA damage. But uh, since then, I started working on this um, transgenerational inheritance, but uh, was very difficult at the beginning, because um, if you have no, if you know C. elegans, you know that C. elegans are mainly hermaphrodites. They have a very few percentage that are male. Most of the population are hermaphrodites, indicate they are bisexual. So they have both female and the uh, male reproductive system in single worm. And once you look at an adult worm, you will see that the germline, the very large germline, they only do oogenesis. They only produce oocyte because spermatogenesis have already completed before they enter the adulthood. So most of people study the germline DNA damage response are mainly focused on oogenesis. And also oocyte DNA damage also link to like a lot of transgenerational effects, also the chromosome abnormality in the progeny. So at the beginning, uh, also Maria and I, we both think that the effect is coming from the oocyte. We never think about uh, it's coming from the sperm. So that's why in the first year of my, uh, when I conducting the project, I was focusing on epigenetic marker and oocyte. And that's why I make uh, like one year, like totally wasted and uh, I didn't get any positive result. And I have tested so many epigenetic marker in the oocyte and also look at the confirmation change of the uh, oocyte nuclei but uh, nothing was found. And I find out was paternal radiation effect was on almost the second year when I started the project. And then that is when I eventually start this project. And 
after I know it's a paternal effect, it's also having a lot of trouble because uh, there is not much information about um, how this uh, sperm carrying epigenetic information to the further generation. There are a few paper, but I have also tested those epigenetic marker, but none of them shows a positive effect. So it was really difficult and I, I was kind of almost gave up um, in, in between on this project because um, the mechanism is very difficult to discover. I mean, the phenotype is very good, but the mechanism is really hard to, to find. But um, we are lucky. I mean, at a, almost a, the two years ago, we did this uh, CELAC assay. And after we doing this omics uh, analysis, and then find the linker histone are the key. And then we're starting to solve this problem. Well, <laughs> but it was really a terrible, not terrible, I mean, very difficult time. I'm so glad you got through it and you stayed persistent. And I'm also very glad that you stayed, you stayed open to what the data shows you. Um, and I think that's very important that we don't let our worldview and bias view um, overshadow the data and then um, uh, and then being persistent. So, I mean, I hope you feel now that it was totally worth it. I, I, I'm so glad, I'm thankful for you that you stayed persistent because I think this changes our knowledge um, system a lot. So it would have been very, you know, Thank yeah, you, very, very you. sad if you if you would have <laughs> if I give up. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you in the name of all of us. And um, and yeah, now uh, everyone should be able to access the paper. Um, so uh, the stage is yours. Unless Peter, did you want to ask something before we start going into the paper? No, I have a have a quest or a, th a thought that is connected to how how this works with dna and then epigenetics which is kind of and then how the programming of the brain works and so forth because i think they are interestingly connected and i need i think that one needs to look at them split those up separately in order to have good models for understanding anyway. I, I hope that okay. if that doesn't make sense whatsoever, I don't have any questions or comments, but. Oh no, just go ahead. I mean, every question is very, has a lot of value, so. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that I want to listen to, to, to the paper first. So the, but that, that is the direction my brain went. Okay. So, anyway, thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. Uh, so maybe now I can start. Um, so before I start the, the story, I can give you a, like a very short introduction about this paternal transgenerational effect. I mean, when I start to notice that it is a paternal effect, I start to read through some literatures about what the previous knowledge about this paternal effect. Mm -hmm. And then I found a very interesting um, studies like uh, in the last century, I don't know whether you know there is a nuclear power plant in Sela Field in UK, and then there are um, 
a small epidemiological uh, group noticed that the kids that living in the uh, village next to the nuclear power plant have high incidence of uh, leukemia and lymphoma. And then the government sent a small um, research team or investigators uh, to the village and to study what's what's wrong with this. And then there soon after two years, there is a report coming out and uh, leading to uh, a theory or a hypothesis is called the Gardner hypothesis. And this hypothesis said, um, if the father exposed to radiation within three to six months before before conception, then it will lead to high uh, risk of cancer in their children. And uh, once it exposed this report and soon is leading to a highly controversial um, response because um, first the N number is quite low and also studies coming from other nuclear power plants do not show very supportive um, uh, observation. And also um, people, especially genetic um, scientists, trying to investigate whether the parental exposure to radiation can lead to the children against more DNA mutation. And then they analyze the survivors from Chernobyl accident or from the Second World War, the atomic bomb. And then they find that there is no incidence of the hypermutation or there is any de novo mutation change in their progeny. And then after so many years, um, the Gardner series was got rejected. And then um, the official conclusion is there is a, no indication of transgenerational effect of parental exposure to radiation. That's what happened in humans studies. But in animal, the study shows like a very op opposite and a very clear uh, observation that in mice, that radiation in the parental generation can lead to high incidence of cancer and infertilities and also mutations in their progeny. So animal study shows very different from human study. And then it's leading to uh, like, um, how to say, a very making this question is very con controversial. And, uh, but like, the, um, one of the reviewers mentioned one sentence, I think is very interesting, is the absence of ev evidence of an effect doesn't constitute evidence of absence of this effect. So you cannot use all of this to say there is no incidence, no evidence to support there is um, transgenerational effect. So that's why when I start my project, I based on this question, uh, I ask whether we can use C elegance to answer this question. I mean, but in you know that C. elegans are mainly hemophrodized in order to distinguish whether the transgenerational effect is coming from the father or is from the mother, we have to use um, sex-separated mutant of C. elegans. So in our case, we used the two mutant, which is FOC2 and SPY8. They have a different way to, to separate the sex. So the FOC2 is a one that I mainly used in my whole paper. So the FOC2 mutant has a spermatogenesis defect. So in the hermaphrodite worm, FOC2 worm, they cannot produce the sperm. So their germline can only generate oocyte. And in the male version 
of the FOP2, they are like the normal male. They continue to produce the fresh sperm. So after we get this sex-separated system, we think that it's a perfect model to mimic the dioecious system like in human. And then we're trying to ask the next question is which, um, which gender or it's whether it's oocyte or sperm can making a transgenerational effect. So now we can move on to the figure one. I think um, when you read this paper, you may, you may find this a little bit annoying because I changed the name of um, all of the generations and also the treatment. So, so at the beginning, we're trying to ask whether irradiated mother will leading to a transgenerational effect. We call this irradiated mother as delta F, as you can see in the figure one. And uh, then after irradiation, we immediately mate the delta F with unirradiated father. Oh, sorry. Uh, with unirradiated father. And then after mating, we immediately analyze the progeny viability. And then we find that there is a dosage dependent increase of progeny lethality, as you can see in the figure 1a. And this increase is due to that there are so much damage happened in the oocyte that cannot be repaired. But this damage will lead to DNA fragmentation, and that will be passed on to the embryo. And the embryo, when they are doing the uh, embryonic uh, embryogenesis, this damage or this DNA breaks will lead to mitotic catastrophe. And that is why it's leading to this dosage-dependent increase of progeny lethality. So that's why in the F1 generation, most of the progeny are dead at embryo stage, but still you can find some of the progeny are surviving, especially in the low and the median dose group. And when we maintain this survive the progeny to adulthood, and we call the daughter of irradiated mother as delta FF, and the son of irradiated mother of delta FM, and then we mate them again with unirradiated countersex, and then we measure their uh, progeny lethality. And then we find that oh, this survived the delta MF and delta MM, uh, delta FF and delta FM, their progeny are totally fine. So there is no transgenerational lethality from irradiated mother. And then we move on to the next question is how's the father? And then we, we only irradiate the father. We call the irradiated father as delta M. And after irradiation, we made them again with unirradiated countersex and measure this progeny viability. And surprisingly, unlike the irradiated mother, when we only irradiate the father, the progeny lethality is relatively quite low and do not show a dosage-dependent manner. So they are roughly around 10 to 20% of progeny lethality. Most of the progeny are healthy and viable. So we maintain the F1 generation's progeny to adulthood, and we call the daughter of delta M as delta MF, and the son of delta M as delta MM. I know that the names are quite weird, but please keep this name in mind because I will refer to them throughout my talk. Um, so after I make them with also unirradiated countersex, I measure zero progeny viability, 
And then the surprising thing happened. It's the progeny viability of delta MF, the daughter of irradiated father, reaching to almost 100% lethality. Almost none of their progeny can survive. And the progeny of delta MM, the son of the irradiated father, reaching to around 50 to 70 of progeny lethality. That's very high. So this high progeny lethality that we observed in the delta M, uh, in the F1 generation indicate irradiated father can lead to a transgenerational lethality. And that is the first phenotype that we observed in this project. And the next question that we ask is how, how many generations uh, this effect may last? And then to answer this question, we pick the very rare survived F2 generation that even in the Delta MF uh, progeny, there still have like very, very few progeny that can survive and become adulthood. We also gave them name and made them with unirradiated countersex. And then in the F3 generation, when the F2 gave, uh, gave progeny, and then the F3 generation or the progeny of F2 shows normal, normal viability. So indicate that the paternal transgenerational effect can only reach to two generations. So the progeny of the F1 or the F2 generation will be the main uh, generation that takes this effect, but not even longer. So after we confirm that the paternal radiation will leading to a transgenerational effect, then the next question is uh, which stage of the sperm are responsible for this effect? And um, now we move on to the figure 1C. And uh, as you may know that um, like in human, the sperm are continue produce, uh, refresh themselves. So, they keep producing new sperm. I think in humans, the whole process may take about 65 days. In elegance is much shorter. And in elegance is also they keep producing new fresh sperm. So in order to understand which stage of the sperm can carry this transgenerational effect, we basically just mate the irradiated male at a different time with unirradiated female. So immediately after irradiation, we made them with unirradiated female, and then we perfectly capture this transgenerational lethality. But if we wait one more day and transfer the same irradiated male with another uh, group of unirradiated female, and then this female will using uh, the sperm that was immature when they are getting irradiation. And then we find there is no transgenerational lethality. And this experiment tell, told us only the mature spermatides are responsible for carrying this transgenerational effect. But immature sperm or spermatogonia or spermatocyte, they can still uh, repair the damage. So, um, this is basically what figure one is, but um, just uh, in parallel, we have done all of the experiment in hemophrodites, which is a wild type C. elegans as well. And unlike this sex separated mutants or this dioecious system, hemophrodites C. elegans do not need to mate with a countersex. So they can just reproduce themselves. So there is no outcrossing. 
So in hermaphrodites, this transgenerational effect can last much more uh, generations than in this FOC2 or SP8 mutant, because that is what we found at the end is because the effect of this transgenerational lethality uh, can be diluted by crossing with unirradiated countersex. If you have never mated with unirradiated countersex, then you cannot introduce intact chromosome to this animal. And then this effect may last much longer compared to the FOC2 and the SPI8 uh, mutant. So after in the figure one, we know there is a transgenerational effect from the father irradiation uh, exposure. The next question that uh, we ask is what kind of DNA damage that inherited from this uh, um, radiated sperm? So to understand this, we decide to use uh, staining to directly tracking the chromatin conformation immediately after irradiation. So if you move on to the figure two, you can see that immediately after irradiation, the sperm shows a morphological change. So instead of this round shape, they becomes more like a comic shape, comet shape. And that shape indicate uh, those sperms are carrying DNA double strand break. So their DNA are basically um, fragmented because we use quite high dose, as you may see. And however, this is not really a surprising thing, but um, those sperm carrying DNA double strand break do not affect their fertility rate. I think it's already known in mammalian system or in other animal, uh, sperm carrying DNA damage, especially mature sperm, do not affect their fertility. So they can perfectly fertilize uh, embryo, uh, fertilize an egg. And after fertilization, in our case, most of the embryos are viable and they can still hatch and develop to become a healthy adult. But in the embryo, we also observed a uh, uh, lot of characteristics about uh, genome instability, such as the chromosome lagging and the chromosome bridging. And the chromosome bridging phenotype, we can also see in the somatic tissue of the F1 adult. So the already father's daughter and the son, they also having this chromosome bridging phenotype in, in their intestinal tissue. So why the chromosome bridging is very interesting. I think maybe you may know that uh, the chromosome bridging is normally indicate they are inter uh, breakage fusion bridge circle. And that is a circle that normally happened in cancer cell is normally a signature of the cancer cell that their genome are super unstable. So they are keep making new double strand break and those double strand break will be mistakenly fusion together with a, a wrong break end. And that normally will lead into a, a very carcinogenesis phenotype. And we found this in the F1 generation, no matter in the embryo or in the adulthood. And that indicate those F1 generation, the daughter and the son of the irradiated father are keep generating new DNA breaks or DNA fragmentation or new DNA uh, chromosome fusion. And then when these things happen to the gametogenesis, when they're uh, starting to generate the germ cells, go through meiosis, 
um, the bad thing will happen because they cannot pairing, because uh, the paternal DNA are broken. They are carrying double strand break or misfusion, so they cannot pair with maternal intact chromosome. They cannot find their pair pairing, so they have a pairing defect. And also by doing staining, we found those germ cells that during crossover, it's called uh, Parkinson stage, they, we found a lot of DNA fragments by staining. At the beginning, we're still thinking these fragments are due to the meat fusion. So we're trying to use a telomere fish. We're directly trying to monitor the telomere at the two end of the chromosome, but we found that a lot of these DNA fragments do not have a telomere sequence. So they are like completely just uh, break the DNA. So after we found uh, after we found this DNA breakage in the germ cell, and then we also noticed they cannot pairing properly, and that perfectly makes sense why their progeny are bad, because their germ cells are mainly are mainly aneuploidy. So instead of having six pair of the chromosome, they have irregular number of the chromosome in the germ cell. And in C. elegans, aneuploidy leading to very high level, almost 100% of progeny lethality. And that's why it's explained why we can see the F2 generations uh, progeny lethality. In order to directly visualize this chromosome fusion or chromosome bridging, um, we decided to perform a single warm whole genome sequencing so we can directly see their sequence, how they are fused together. And uh, to do the single warm whole genome sequencing, we pick 10 from the Delta MF group, which is a daughter of the irradiated father and the 10 Delta MM, the son of the irradiated father. And in the figure 2G, uh, here is an individual example from each group. And this is our uh, sequencing result. As you can see in this form, they form a lot of this chromosome misfusion, or we call this in our paper as chromosome translocations. So what are they? So you can see that on the graph, part of the chromosome one translocated to chromosome five, part of the chromosome X translocated to chromosome three. So this is what we call the chromosome translocations. And we find another interesting thing about when we are looking through our um, translocation map, we found another interesting thing is if you look at our uh, um, supplementary figure, you may also notice all of the Delta MF, all of the daughter from the irradiated father are carrying at least one translocation on their X chromosome. But all of the worm that belong to the Delta MM group, that the son of the irradiated father, none of them carrying translocation on their X chromosome. I mean, that could be very easily uh, explained because their son, uh, the irradiated father's son, the Delta MM, can only inherit an X chromosome from their unirradiated mother, but their daughter will definitely inherit one X chromosome from their irradiated father. So that's why all of their daughter carrying translocation on the X chromosome, but none of their son carrying translocation on the X chromosome. And then it reminds us the phenotype that we observed in the figure one. 
that the daughter of irradiated father shows much higher, much severe progeny lethality compared with the son of the irradiated father. So we were wondering whether this difference of their progeny viability is due to the X chromosome translocation. At that moment was really um, like uh, very lucky. At that moment, there is one paper that just come out in Seligan. He found this paper's author found like X chromosome integrity can affect a sex chromosome uh, transcription inactivation, which is happened during meiosis. This process is very important for the uh, during meiosis. If the X chromosome are desilencing, so they cannot be transcriptionally silenced, then it will leading to very high level of progeny lethality. So we are wondering whether in our case, the translocation happened on the X chromosome can leading to high progeny lethality is due to the transcription activation in this X chromosome. To, or to prove our, this hypothesis, we standing, we perform a standing with the antibody against a transcription activation marker. It's a phosphor 2 the SIR2 phosphorylation on RNA polymerase 2. And we also co-stand with X chromosome marker, which is a heme 8. So you can see that in the panel H, that the chromosome that labeled with the red dot, which is the X chromosome, the red dot is heme 8, is the parent center protein of the X chromosome. And this chromosome are normally silenced because of the meiotic sex chromosome inactivation process. But in the daughter of the irradiated father, this chromosome shows transcriptionally activation. And the transcription activation on the sex chromosome are known that in their paper linked with high progeny lethality. So that perfectly explained why their daughter have much severe transgenerational lethality compared with the son, because the daughter carrying X chromosome translocation. So after we understand what kind of DNA damage are transmitted from the irradiated father. And the next question we ask is why the double strand break happened in the paternal genome cannot be properly repaired in their progeny or and, uh, during uh, embryogenesis. So we want to know what kind of DNA repair they use because this is definitely a wrong DNA repair machinery because they make so much mistakes. And when we are analyzing our DNA sequencing data, we're specifically looking at the translocation site. And because when we're doing single worm whole genome sequencing, we cannot see DNA fragmentation. We can only see this translocation. So we look at the breakpoints of this translocation. And surprisingly, at this breakpoint, we found that there are templated insertion. Let's just move on to the figure three. And this templated insertion, what is that? Is about um, a short base pair uh, that are has a template within a very close region to this breakpoint. And this template are inserted into this breakpoint. And this is called templated insertion and insert. And these inserts are normally, it's a typical signature of a special 
um, DNA repair machinery is called alternative um, non-homologue and joining our polymerase theta mediated and joining. Another feature of this DNA repair is they are normally using microhomology as a, a template to annealing the double strand break. So here I can give you a short introduction about how to repair double strand break um, normally. So there are two classic DNA repair machinery to repair the double strand break. Normally, it's one is called homologue recombination. It's an accurate repair machinery because it's always using the homologue um, chromosome as a template. And then they repair this double strand break based on the template. So that's why it's, um, um, it's an accurate, it's a precise error-free DNA repair machinery. And the other classic repair machinery is called a non-homologue and joining or NHEJ. And this repair machinery do not use a template. So they directly annealing two break and together. So when they are using NHEJ, they normally make a mistake. But the TMEJ, the polymerase theta mediate and joining, which I found in our paper, it's an alternative um, and the joining. It's not belong to homologue recombination. It's also not belong to the NHEJ. It's an alternative way. It's normally activated when homologue recombination and non-homologue and joining are both inactivated. And then the, the cell may use the TMEJ, the post mediate and joining to repair. So this repair machinery, instead of using the homologue uh, chromosome sequence as a template, they're only using one or two base pair of the homologue as a template. For example, the brick and they use only the one base pair as a homologue, as a template. So they're trying to use template, but they use very short template. That's why it's an AeroPro repair machinery. It's also making a lot of mistake. And what we found in our case, in this F1 generation, we found this F1 generation also have this microhomology pattern, as you can see in the panel B. And that indicate instead of using homolog recombination, the HR are using NHEJ, they are actually using this TMEJ to repair this uh, paternal DNA damage. And that also perfectly explained why they are making keep making new breaks because none of this repair are accurate. They are keep making new uh, misfusion. And that is move on to the panel C. So the panel C is once we found this TMEJ marker, we want to know whether TMEJ is the only repair machinery that was engaged in repairing this paternal DNA damage. We're screening through different mutants from the homolog recombination, non-homolog and joining, and the TMEJ. And we want to find which mutants may leading to um, um, like more sensitive to this paternal DNA damage. And the result is very, very obvious. Like when we, you can see that the BRC1 cross with FOC2, we all cross them into the FOC2 background. The BRC1 is a mutant of homologue recombination. And the CKU70 is a mutant of non-homologue and joining the NHEJ. And the, the POQ1, the POLQ1, is a mutant of the TMEJ. And we use these three 
pathways mutant and we found when we muted the homolog recombination, there is no significant difference. When we muted the non-homolog and joining the CKU70, there is a slightly increase of uh, protein uniformity, but it's mainly at a high dosage group and also in the progeny of Delta MM. But surprisingly, when we remove the TMEJ repair protein, which is the POQ1, then the F1 generation already shows almost 100% of proteinylisolity. And also the survived progeny are sterile, so there is no further generation. So that clearly shows that only the, that the paternal DNA damage are mainly using this alternative NHEJ or the TMEJ to repair this paternal DNA damage, which is the positive-mediated and joining. And because this is an error-prone repair machinery, that's why it's leading to all this genome instability phenotype that we showed uh, in the figure two. And the next question that we are curious is um, whether it's the father, the sperm itself, can repair their damage within the sperm by using TMEJ, or is the mother that after fertilization can repair the paternal DNA damage with the TMEJ. So to answer this question, we use different combination of the mutants that, uh, that either on the father or in the mother. And then we find like, as you can see in the FOG2 uh, single mutants, their F1 generation can only lead to around 10% of protein lethality. But when the father are devoid of this um, TMEJ protein, POQ1, then it's also leading to almost similar level of the as the FOC2 single mutants. But when we remove the POQ1 in the maternal, um, in the oocyte, and then it's leading to almost 100% of progeny lethality. So what does it mean? It means that the paternal DNA damage cannot repair their own damage within the sperm. It, it can only be repaired after, after fertilization and the use of paternally provided DNA repair machinery, which is a POQ1, the TMEJ, to repair the paternal DNA damage. So now we know that paternal DNA damage can be repaired by using an error-prone repair machinery, which is TMEJ. And then it's raising the next question, which I think is also the most important question. Why, why the progeny decide to use an error-prone repair machinery to deal with the father's DNA damage? Why they cannot activate uh, accurate repair machinery? So to understand the mechanism, we actually struggling with this question for several years, but uh, we performed an omic study um, at the end by using the CELAC. And uh, so with the CELAC, we trying to see in the F1 generation, how the protein change and which proteins are increased, which protein are decreased in the F1 generation. And then we found like, um, in the F1 generation, as you can see in the figure four in the panel A, we found most of the protein that changed are within this protein DNA complex assembling process. And if we look at all of this protein involved in this process, we found in the panel B, most of this protein are upregulated in the F1 generation. And the top three candidates are the histone H1, 
proteins. So what is this histone H1 is doing? And um, at that moment, we are not sure what are these increased histone H1. So we decide to knock them down. So we're using the RNAi to knock down this histone H1 protein, the linker histone proteins. And then we found like um, at the beginning, we knocked them down in the hemophrodites, and then we found that there is a residual effect on the transgenerational lethality. And then we generate a mutant, uh, also crossed with a FOP2 mutant, and then we found the mutant also significantly rescued um, the transgenerational lethality, which indicate that the increased linker histone H1 is the reason that leading to this transgenerational lethality. So why, why is uh, histone H1 is so important? Then we should going back to the function of the histone H1, what they are doing. So normally we know that increase of the histone H1 because it's a linker histone, it's normally linked with a conformational change of the chromatin. It can make the chromatin more compacted. compacted. So another important thing is when you increase hydrochromatin, uh, you increase the histone H1, it's also leading to the hydrochromatinization. So the chromatin becomes more hydrochromatin-like. And in order to confirm whether increase of histone H1 is correlated with increased hydrochromatin formation, uh, we also performed the hydrochromatin marker immunofluorescence. And as you can see in the panel D, in the daughter and the son of the irradiated father, the delta MF and delta MM's germline, this shows much higher level of the hydrochromatin marker, which is HCK9 ME2. That is the marker in elegance for hydrochromatin germline. And we can see there is significant increase. And the increase of this hydrochromatin is not restricted to specific chromosome. It's basically quite random random on the whole whole uh, whole genome and then we want to know whether by removing the histone h1 we can diminish the hydrochromatin level and then in the panel e we perform the histone uh, histone h1 knockdown which is a his 24 knockdown and we can we can see that there is significantly reduction of the hydrochromatin level, and in parallel we also uh, knock down the hydrochromatin protein. <coughs> Sorry, which is um, HPL one in C. elegans, and um, we also find that there is a significant reduction of hydrochromatin formation, as you can see the quantification in the panel E. And then we are wondering whether directly removing the hydrochromatin formation by removing the hydrochromatin protein can also rescue this transgenerational lethality. And then the answer is yes. We found that in the panel F, we also performed this uh, transgenerational lethality assay. And in this HPL1 cross with FOC2 double mutant, and then we also found a significant rescue effect that indicate the increase of linker histone and hydrochromatin formation. It looks like it's a barrier for survival of the F2 generation. And then we are wondering why, why making the chromatin more compact can make the, uh, the progeny uh, lethality? What's the reason? So when we are performing the experiments um, in the 
figure four, when we are doing the standing, we also notice the one thing is um, the homolog recombination marker, which is uh, um, sorry. Yeah, the homology is a rad 51 that we used as a homolog recombination marker. Homolog recombination marker is increased in this HIS24 and HPL1 RKI group. So what does it mean? So homolog recombination is accurate repair machinery, as I introduced to you before. And this, modif uh, this marker do not show a severe increase in the F1 generation, in the normal, um, in the empty vector treated group. However, in the HIS24 and the HPL1 RNAi group, when we, when we remove the heterochromatin and remove the linker histone H1, we can see in the germline, this shows increased level of this rad 51 foci, which indicate that those germ cells can activate an accurate repair machinery. And then we want to know whether the activation of the accurate repair machinery is the reason they rescued the progeny lethality. So therefore, we performed our, um, actually the last experiments, we combine all of this um, knockdown. So we combine, we knocked down both heterochromatin marker, um, headstone H1, and also the, home, uh, the homolog recombination protein BRC1. And then as you can see, when we only knock down, only remove the BRC1, the homolog recombination protein, they do not show any change compared with the empty vector, which is previously known because the paternal DNA damage do not use homolog recombination. And when we remove histone H1, or when we remove hydrochromatin marker, this shows a rescue effect. But interestingly, when we remove both the heterochromatin and the homolog recombination protein, then the rescue effect is completely abolished, which indicates the rescue effect of removing the histone H1 is based on the activation of the active uh, of the accurate repair machinery, homolog recombination repair. So basically, that's the end of my talk today. And uh, the last figure is a summary of the model of our story. So it's very simple. So after irradiation on the male, the sperm DNA becomes fragmented. However, it doesn't affect their ability to fertilize the egg. And then after fertilization, the oocyte or the maternal side will using an arrow-prone repair machinery is called TNEJ. Uh, especially the polymerase theta, come to repair the paternal DNA double strand break. And because this TMEJ is arrow prone repair machinery, so they keep making the DNA, uh, the chromosome misfusion or chromosome translocation and DNA fragmentations in those uh, embryos. Once this embryo grow up and start to generate germ cells, and that things will also making mistake during meiosis, and also importantly in the in the germ cell, this misfusion or this misfusion or chromosome translocation or DNA breaks, making this chromatin are uh, becomes more compacted. So they recruit a lot of histone H1, building this heterochromatin formation, and then this heterochromatin formation block the usage 
of the accurate repair machinery, which is homolog recombination. And because it's blocked, this is re uh, the accurate repair machinery. So their germ cells are mainly aneuploidy. And this aneuploidy leading to this high embryonic lethality in the F2 generation. And here has a two, uh, two scenario. One is a daughter, one is a son. And the son, because the X chromosome are still perfectly silenced because the X chromosome are intact, so their progeny lethality is milder compared with the daughter. So basically, that's what I found. <laughs> so now, please, um, if you have any question, it's time. Thank you so much. Uh, this is such beautiful work. And uh, thank you so much for presenting it to us. Um, <clears throat> because I can only imagine how much work it was. It must have been a lot of work. And um, the the mechanism you found is, is really interesting. Just, you know, when you started um, also how you showed, again, more like a principle, like how for evolution, it was really important to have mm. female and male because you showed uh, that when you separate C. elegans, male and female, mm -hmm. uh, the this just goes for on for two generations. But then, if you don't have that, you know this go this damage goes on and on and on. So yeah. already that is a really you know that you show that in a model like that mm -hmm. is already really important. I think uh, the important thing, I mean, if you are mentioning in the in the elegans, normally they are hermaphrodites. So the progeny of the, the carrying that paternal DNA damage, they can carry on this DNA damage forever because after the F2 generation, the DNA damage that in the, in the progeny becomes stable, they are aneuploidy. Aneuploidy, although they are leading to high lethality, but they are more stable compared with in the F1 generation. They are basically making new bricks, so the genomes are instable. So that's why in the F2 generation, um, most of them are kind of eliminated. The one that carrying very severe um, chromosome abnormality are eliminated, and that's why the the protein can still survive. Survive the one they can still carry normal progeny that carry on, um, they can still survive, but in the hemophrodites, when they cannot uh, mate it with another pair of intact chromosomes, then this phenomenon will continue forever. So in the hemophrodites, mm, I think it's kind of a, a benefit of the evolution. It's this, um, it's the dioecious system that they are keep mating with unibreded or undamaged countersex can making the species to eliminate the detrimental um, effect of the genetic mutation or genetic uh, chromosome abnormality. And then they can maintain the species, but in hemophrodites, in C. elegans, like this bisexual animal, without this mating system, uh, a lot of this damage will be continue forever, like much longer. Yeah, exactly. Already that I think that you show this so um you know, this evidence um in such a a great way. 
already that I think is is really interesting. And then on top, you show the mechanism, the repair mechanism, and and uh, which parts are essential. That is also uh, really interesting. And um, Thank you. yeah, so, <laughs> but um, before I go ahead and ask a lot of questions, I wanted to ask Peter and LT if you have a question that you wanted to ask. I think I wait a little bit and think if I have a better question. Uh, yeah. Sure. Uh, LT, did you, um, did you have a question? Yes, uh, what a uh, histone one red knock out. Is there any mm -hmm. other uh, histone um, things you tried to knock out to see whether the yes. effect would be same? Thank you. Yes, yes. Actually, when we after we got this proteomics uh, result, we noticed there are a lot of histone proteins are upregulated in the F1 generation. It's not only the histone H1. Actually, the histone H1 is just a top candidate. We also trying to knock out, uh, knock down all the other histone proteins like histone H3, H2A, H2B, but um, actually none of them can show in this residue effect. Histone H1 gave me the best result, and it's not only the HIST24. As you can see in our paper, we mainly use HIST24 as um, H1 knockdown. But we have also tried of HEAL3 and HEAL2, which is also another two protein encoding the histone H1 protein in C. elegans. And HEAL3 also shows a partial residue effect, but the effect is much weaker compared with the HIS24. And HEAL2 is very lethal. When we knock down HEAL2, the worm cannot generate a viable progeny. So, I think also happened when we knock out uh, other histone proteins, some of them leading to very high level of lethality. So I cannot get a clear conclusion from that. But his 24 is a very clear one. That yeah. Because I was almost thinking, because you have done some double knockout, I was just thinking, so now I understand. Yeah, we also so maybe other two lethal, yes, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We also have done that. HIL2 is too lethal. HIL3 and HIS24 double knockout, making a better rescue. That's true. It's beautiful. I have to go back so, and read more because yeah. I missed the beginning. Your introduction is important. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay, back to you, no Katarina. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for those questions. And I wanted to check with you the time, how much time you still have. Um, for questions, do you do you have like ten more minutes, fifty? Just yeah, to sure. Learn. Yeah, sure. Okay, yeah. perfect. Yeah, thank you. And I wanted to ask, um, if do you also check for other epigenetic mechanisms, or are you planning to check, um? such as a methylation effects or also um, maybe uh, 3D formations um, that maybe um, also happen to maybe milder radiation. I don't know um, if, you know, if strong radiation would change any of that, but uh, maybe milder ones. I Thank you. Yes. 
Oh, that's a good question. Actually, at the beginning, we are mainly focused on epigenetic modification. So that's why we do test it uh, quite a lot of uh, epigenetic modifications. And um, especially, as you may know, that in C. elegans, one of the modification is quite correlated with transgenerational inheritance is H3K4 isolation. We have focused on this marker for quite long. But uh, so far, we didn't find any evidence about uh, this modification is involved. And the other thing that you may notice um, that our mechanism, this transgenerational effect, is not a pure epigenetic effect. It's like half genetic or half and half epigenetics, I would say in that way. I mean, the genetic effect is the main trigger of this transgenerational thing because they are using a different DNA repair machinery is a very problematic DNA repair machinery. That's a main reason that it triggered this transgenerational um, effect. But I was also thinking whether this choice is due to some epigenetic uh, reason, but I haven't found any evidence. But one um, hypothesis or just uh, speculation is, um, as you may know that uh, chromatin of the sperm are highly compacted, uh, highly packed. So they are um, they are replacing their classic histone with a protein called protamine. So they are not packaged with the histone, they are packaged with the protamine. So when they fertilize a sperm that fertilize an egg, the protamine need to be replaced with hydrochromatin, uh, with the histone. And this replacement of the protein with the histone will be one of the triggers that making the sperm DNA damage cannot be properly repaired as the maternal DNA damage. But um, this replacement or the 3D structure that uh, changed during fertilization will be one of the interesting topic to follow up, I, I would say that. Yeah, thank you. Um, that's really interesting. Um, and did you, um, or are you planning to maybe um, use just human cell? Like, if you compare this repair mechanism and if you irradiate um, human cell lines, uh, is there a comparable repair mechanism? that is being used by human cells and would you expect that maybe human cells have a more a better strategy to repair and that's why in the human studies we didn't see that that huge effect on transgenerational damage um unfortunately that so far our our evidence shows the opposite. It seems like the human doing the same as the elegance. I mean, we do analyze the, the human data data set uh, that in our supplementary figure seven, if you can see that um, in the human data site, it looks like the paternal de novo mutations also carrying a very clear pattern of microhomology that indicate that in human paternal DNA damage also will using TMEJ, this problematic repair machinery to repair their damage. So it looks like um, it is a very conserved uh, mechanism. And the other thing that we want to say is why in human epidemiological study could, do not 
uh, generate a supportive conclusion is because our result finding that only the mature spermatized can carry this transgenerational effect. In human, mature sperm are stored in human in, in a very, very short time. What indicate is like um, they must get uh, have the conception within very short time after irradiation, then it may lead to this transgenerational effect. Spermatogonia or spermatocyte, they can repair the DNA damage property. And that is already been known, that is already known that by other people's work that the spermatogonia, they have the very good DNA repair efficiency, but only when they become spermatite, and then they lose all the repair machinery. And I think that is a, the, the period that they are very vulnerable to, vulnerable to DNA damage and they can tr trigger this transgenerational lethality or transgenerational effect. So I think in human it's basically, so far our evidence thinks it's like uh, very similar to C. elegans that um, it may also trigger a similar effect. But I think if you're thinking from evolutionary view, then it makes sense. I mean. Uh, normally, the sperm that brings more de, de novo mutation to our offspring. So, the diversity of our species is actually coming from the father rather than the mother. Because the sperm DNA damage, when they have a break, no matter coming from replication, coming from DNA damage or agents, this damage cannot be perfectly repaired in sperm. And this damage in human or in other species can trigger this diversity of the genetics, the genetic diversity in every species and making um, this population is more, um, they can be viable in different circumstances. I think in evolutionary view, it all makes sense. That is really interesting. Um, and you know, there there has been some evidence um, or some studies showing that um, if um, older fathers um, have children, um, that the occurrence of autism, even with younger women, that the occurrence of autism is higher in, in the children. Um, so do you think that the you know that this principle is not just you know with radiation do you think that damage due to aging um in general um would that the repair mechanism would it be still the same and yeah. would it miss then a lot of damage from the aging uh, male Yes, I mean, uh, the aging is definitely a very big if, uh, factor for affecting this DNA uh, mutation rate. I mean, the, the older the father, they accumulate more DNA damage. That is already been found. And as you can, you mentioned that is correlated with uh, mental diseases such as uh, autism, yeah. And we also think that is correlated with decline of the DNA repair efficiency in the sperma, uh, spermatogenesis. And that is actually already known that in human, that along with uh, age, 
the DNA repair, and also because sperm are went through so many rounds of proliferation, and the DNA replication is a big source of DNA mutations. They keep making mistakes, and the the repair machinery or the proofreading function of the replication also start to make more mistakes when they get old. And that is a big source of uh, mutation come from the father. And the other thing is also chemotherapy or radiotherapy or some like occupational exposed to the DNA damage agents is another source of getting more mutation in the paternal genome. And that is also, yeah, very, very dangerous if you're thinking about uh, your um, progeny's health. Yeah, interesting. Thank you so much. Um, and um, um, somebody joined the stage. I, I'm not a legaler. Um, yeah, please go I ahead. Your question. Hi, uh, my name is actually Soren. I, I haven't had the chance to change my name back on Clubhouse. Uh, to me, I'm a psychologist and a medical student. And uh, I wanted to ask, uh, I'm very, first of all, um, I'm grateful for your club and for your science foundation. I was looking in the last year for uh, scientific rooms and groups. Um, I'm the leading expert for science uh, psychology, neuropsychology in, in Germany, uh, in Clubhouse, not in the entire country. Uh, so I'm very thankful for all the conversations and discussions you're hosting, and it's a very fruitful and, and very good room. Thank you for that. Um, then to my question, um, with the, since um, since uh, histones, uh, uh, you know, in the DNA in genetics there are different kinds of mutations, and uh, I wanted to ask if it's known what what kind of mutation is responsible for the uh, repair restriction? Is it a silent mutation? Is it a frame shift mutation? Or because there are like different different variants of mutations, can anyone relate or help respond to that? Uh, may I repeat your question? You asking what kind of mutation can leading to the DNA repair deficiency? Is this what your question? Yes, yes, yes. Mm, I mean, in C. elegans or in human, that's a different question, I think. In human, there are quite a lot of mutations happen with DNA repair machinery, and a lot of them are linking with uh, are linked with cancer. I think if you can see that um, no matter on p53 or BRCA1, those mutations are affecting the DNA damage response. Uh, but the mutations that correlated with my topic today, with like paternal DNA damage, especially PoQ. So the TMEJ repair machinery mutation. To be honest, I haven't found the one that in human, so I couldn't give you a, a clear answer on this. Ah, okay. So, so this paper is not related to humans. I'm sorry, I just uh, overflew uh, it. Yeah, I mean, in human, I haven't found the PoQ1 mutation that related with disease. I think it's basically because PoQ. This is the enzyme that is required for repair this paternal DNA damage. It's also the enzyme that's required when the other two repair machinery are inactivate, and then this repair may play a role. 
So I think the function of this repair machinery in a normal human, like um, in physiological way, is not like very detrimental. Even the human carrying a mutation doesn't relate it to obvious disease. I think that's the reason why we haven't discovered like a mutation on this protein that um, correlated with disease. But um, yeah, that would be a very interesting question. So um, yeah, so, so mm -hmm. from what you just uh, that answers to, to the question, it may assume that because in humans, so we have the early two, you know, like the precise repairs and then what's the second one? It's already enough, so that's why it's like underneath. It's like never has a need to activate it. So the it's, mutation yeah. spectrum mm -hmm. would be wider than if you look. Can you, if you have time, I'm looking at the slide seven mm -hmm. of your supplemental. Um, mm -hmm. Before, if Peter has question, Peter can ask. But if Peter is not, do you mind? Like because go, that's okay. Could you go quickly over? <laughs> Thank you. Ah, uh, you mean the supplementary figure seven? Yes, because you mentioned that when Katarina is asking a question about have you looked at the human, mm -hmm. you know. So either way, choose however you want to answer your answer about the human never have the need to activate this PM, oh, I see. TMJC. I mean, <laughs> Thank you. TMEJ. Oh, yeah, this is a repair machinery called the TMEJ. Uh, first, the TMEJ was like just been found like uh, less than 10 years as a very new repair machinery. And for people that who discovered this machinery is when they remove like both home log recombination and non-home log and running, then they found, okay, now the cell can using the, an, another, it's also called alternative repair machinery. It's TMEJ to repair the double spring break. And then they are thinking maybe this one is not the, crucial repair machinery that um, in the in the tissue or in most of the tissue. But after they discovered the TMEJ, they found this TMEJ also play a lot of role in immune cell. I didn't focus on the immune cell, but I read some article about this TMEJ play a role in T cell. So I think it's also crucial for very specific event in, in in the organism. For example, in the immune system, or in our case, is paternal DNA damage. But doesn't mean that when the human carrying the PoQ1 mutants are completely fine. I don't think they are completely fine, but it's probably just not that obvious as when they mutate with homolog recombination or non-home log and joining the two classic repair machinery. Maybe they can making that the progeny have a higher mutation rate, but we haven't tested this. We don't know whether in human, if they are carrying this Pokemon, they are having higher mutation rate. We don't know. We do not have the, how to say, the sample to the investigate this the question. Like here we're talking about the yeah. data. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for those questions. Um, does anyone maybe? Oh, yeah. Hi, um, uh, Yuan. Um, did you want to ask uh, the last question? Thank you. 
Oh, yes, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. Um, uh, also, I would like to thank Dr. Wang for this uh, wonderful presentation. <clears throat> Actually, I, uh, <laughs> I'm not, uh, my major is electrical engineering. I, I'm uh, quite a layman in this field, so forgive me if I ask something very fundamental. No problem. Uh, so my question is, uh, you mentioned three, three mechanisms for repairing mm -hmm. the DNA. And I would like to know um, when, when do they, uh, in which scenarios do they take, uh, take action or they, they all start all, uh, all together? Mm, uh, no. I mean, <clears throat> uh, when we talk about the, the mutation, uh, I first, my first thought is that uh, it comes from the radiation. We, all, mm. we are all the time exposed to, to the radiation, the background of radiation of the nature. And also sometimes we do the X-ray check, uh, especially for the CT scan. Um, we we will receive a, a lot of radiation in a short time. So uh, people are talking about the dosage, and then they say it's okay. You, you just receive some dosage, like uh, one year in, in in the natural environment if you take an X-ray. But um, I I wonder if you receive such a high dose in a short time, relatively high dose in a short time. Um, does it, uh, I think it's more severe than you receiving a low dose, like the background radiation, radiation uh, for a long period of time, because you have more time to repair, repair your mutation. But if you receive an uh, intensive uh, dose, not that intensive, I mean, uh, like X-ray scan or CT scan, um, is that more severe and causing more DNA damage than uh, than the equal amount uh, of dosage that you receive in a long time. Uh, that's mm. my question. Thank you. Okay. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for your question. I mean, uh, the question that you ask is about acute radiation and the chronic radiation. So in my topic so far, when you hear, heard is about acute radiation. So we only gave them one dose of radiation at only one time at this different dose of the radiation and observing the effect. They also have a study working on chronic radiation, which they are giving the radiation in a kind of um, uh, a rate, like they are exposed to certain level of, very low level of radiation to mimic some occupational exposure. Like, uh, for example, uh, for people who is working in the hospital, uh, dealing with the radiation medicine or working with a nuclear power plant, they are exposed to chronic uh, radiation. Um, that is definitely different, but at least from what we found, like uh, in our supplementary as well, we found that even with very low dose of radiation, it may damage the sperm. So the mature sperm, when they are uh, finished the meiosis, that when they become spermatized, they are unable to repair any kind of the damage. When no matter if it's a low dose or a high dose of radiation, even in our supplementary figure seven, we also observed in the nature environment, in the physiological condition, even they do not uh, get any radiation, they still can having double strand break in their sperm. That is can coming from different other reasons. 
but no matter chronic or acute radiation, low dose or high dose, mature sperm cannot repair any of this damage, and then it can all leading to a certain kind of uh, transgenerational effect. It's only difference is how many damage they can induce in a single sperm. Whether in our case, we use very high dose, they induce so many double sperm breaks. And when there are so many breaks, they can making a lot of more mistakes or more misfusion between the, the break points. But when there is only one or only two double sperm breaks, maybe the, um, they can repair more accurate and they make less mistake. But um, this is all depends on the, I think, depends on the chance. But another thing about the chronic radiation is whether it will affect early stage of spermatogenesis. And that is another question. I mean, I haven't studied the chronic radiation, but I know some people from other lab who has done some study on the chronic radiation exposure on early spermatogenesis. And that one shows it's going to lower the um, sperm, uh, sperm quantity. So they will generate less sperm cell. So I do think irradiation, no matter it's chronic or acute, it will affect the, um, the sperm. I mean, from different way, but the mechanism with the chronic radiation on the early spermatogenesis, so far, I don't think it's, a, it's very clearly understand yet. Um, yeah, if I answer the question. Um, thank you very much. Uh, so it seems uh, they have to implement some shielding uh, for the sperm bank. Mm -hmm. Sorry? Uh, I mean, you mentioned that for um, mature sperm, it's very uh, sensitive to radiation. Yes. So I, I'm yes. wondering if they need to uh, make some shielding structure uh, uh -huh. for the sperm. Yes, definitely. We do think that uh, the like in the sperm bank, um, <laughs> they should be specially protected. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, the Victoria asked in the chat uh, one last question. Um, if this study, um, if you or somebody is planning to move this to other models, um, and and check if the mechanism is the same, but you already kind of hinted that this is a very conserved mechanism. So, Yes, uh, we are also thinking about using mice or using other model organism, but uh, it will be our next step. But so far by analyzing the public, the data side looks like it's a conserved mechanism, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so much for these um, questions and um, thank you so much for answering um, so many of our questions and for giving this talk. This is really interesting and groundbreaking research and I hope the best for the future and we are very curious to learn what comes thank next you. out of your lab. 
Peter, did you have something you wanted to say? Yeah, I I don't really have any good questions. And if I have questions, I probably have ones to enough of them to to fill the rest of this week. So if we get started on that, but the way I look at this is that DNA is kind of hardware programming in a way. Epigenetics is ways that you can affect how the DNA and the, the hardware actually works. And then on top of that, you also have the, the software, how we program the brain, which so all of these things, how that can be affected and where I come from, I come from a background where I've been playing around with elite sports and extreme things in a whole lot of areas, both physical and uh, how we affect our brain and how we can use that and how that can be affected and our understanding of that, it's extremely poor. and. These are areas that I think have it, it it's, has massive potential. And I think it's very underappreciated because it's talk about like uh, Elon Musk's Neuralink and all of that. But if we ignore that and look at what we can influence by food, training, environment, and what to avoid and what to do, and also how we can influence our brain programming by completely different means. It has potential that is beyond what most people realize. And I've been playing around with it for most of my life. And uh, the, what can be done is absolutely amazing. And it's very poorly understood as far as I can see. And I think what you're working with, I don't know if this is this what I just said, is things that you're thinking about or touching. But I, I think the area is extremely interesting. And if if what I said is of any interest, uh, tell me because I, I probably have ideas from a different angle than what, what research you're doing. Because I'm not coming from the same aspect. I'm looking at what, what has been working and so forth, but it links into what you're looking at. So I'm very curious, even though I can only ask dumb questions when it comes to the specifics of what you're doing. So no, I anyway. think you mentioned it was a brilliant question. I have never touched that field yet, but uh, was very fascinating. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a lot of things that people believe are impossible or possible. Mm -hmm. And it's so much talk about people having talent, but the human body when, and I think it has to do with epigenetics too, because you can trigger the body to respond to training and, it, and a whole lot of things that the body can suddenly respond very different than it did previously. So what the body can develop into when you push it and when you train it in sports or any other area is quite amazing. And it's very hard to predict before it's actually tested. So the idea that people are born with talent, yes, but you do not know with the individual before. 
and many more individuals respond to certain inputs and training the same as you said there but i and and if you have two seconds i have one specific question uh, if if you have yeah sure Definitely. my specific question and you may have answered it i'm going to re-listen to this what did you say about because it has always been curious to me like the the bombs the nuclear bombs in japan that the cities nagasaki and hiroshima are rebuilt and people seem to live there very healthily so the damage that was caused that seems to have been very temporary even though it's a sensitive subject so could you do you know anything and that you could enlighten me that it doesn't seem that it's caused damage oh uh, yeah i think that's what i found in this paper as well i mean that is because the time range when can leading to this transgenerational effect is very short so in this kind of accident no matter in the second world war the atomic bomb or during the chernobyl accident this is like a, a disaster is a big event i mean people get radiation at this event and until they decide to giving birth to their next generation i think it's normally not happened at the same time and uh, normally that can leading to this transgenerational effect is when you're exposed to the radiation and then within a very short period i think this is based on my speculation should be within one month then you get conception then it can lead to the transgenerational effect we missing the indication of the transgenerational effect because um the people who got radiation during this event do not having conception within one week or one month during this period. So their sperm already repaired the damage because immature sperm or early stage of the spermatogenesis, they can repair the damage. That's why we do not have any evidence of transgenerational effect from this, this kind of accidents. But I think my study will be more meaningful for people who are regularly exposed to the radiation for example the doctor or uh, doctor working with radiation or uh, the worker working in the nuclear power plant that is more meaningful for for them rather than for the accidents yeah very very interesting because that's been a thing that i've kind of thought about why that was and why it is and i've and it's the first time I've heard someone that have some that have looked at it. So, so thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, yeah, thank you so much for that question because the 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 resilience and the training and the environment question, I think, um, and and then health and modify what you're talented in or or human health, uh, for aging. I think that's also something you are interested in, in, in your lab, maybe in the future, yes. right? As far. Yes. Yeah. So, um, it would be interesting also to learn about that part of your interest mm -hmm. of your work one day. So uh, whenever you want to come back, you're always. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, once I got new, like, um, <laughs> 
new data that want to share with you. I mean, nice stories. If I had, then I will definitely will come back. Well, just, thank you. Just one comment yeah. there. Yeah, just one comment. One of the things that I find so sad when in what is talked about is that the people are referencing talent, which kind of tells a whole lot of people that, oh, I don't believe I have talent. It's other people that have it. So I don't even try, which for sports may be one thing, but it's so many other things that may have massive health effects that people are like, yes, I, I, I just am stuck with this. And I believe that there is so much that people are not even trying that could have massive effects that are not that hard. And I find that really, really sad. So th this was a side note, but uh, I, th I think it's, it's something that is very, very important combined with the research and so forth. But it's also what people believe is possible and also have a path to actually do things. So anyway, thank you. So, sorry for maybe going off on tangents here. But I find it thank fascinating. Thank you, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. I think it's a very important point, Peter, in general, because uh, back in time when I was in school, uh, the physics teacher told my mother in Germany, yeah, she she's good for a girl, but she's still a girl. <laughs> and um and all these things I think they suggest you talent uh, or that this is way too hard for you to understand and then your perception of the whole subject is maybe different and then also yeah what people can still do in aging, um uh, or when you're older. Um, I, I think it's changing a little bit with um, research that's just coming out. Uh, but yeah, I, I really agree that it's sad and that, you know, the more research we will get around this um, will hopefully change that mindset. And, you know, epigenetic and histone modulations are also important in the brain for memory and so on. So uh, I think it's a very exciting field. So yeah, as I said, I'm curious uh, to see uh, what is what will come out out of your lab in the future. Congratulations for being persistent. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Next time I will try again. <laughs> no, it was wonderful discussion. We really appreciate it. And and yeah, good luck for everything. I hope you get a lot of grants. You probably Thank have. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you both, Katarina, Yo, and everybody else. It, I really enjoy it. Yeah. Thank you, LT, for your questions. And uh, Thank yeah. You. Thanks everyone for coming. It's always so much more interesting discussion if different, you know, people from different backgrounds come together hi. and discuss it. Question. Hey, Park. Hi, 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 Katarina. How are you? Um. So. I joined a bit late, but I got the gist of it. I'm actually uh, downloaded the paper. Thank you for doing this room and for the talk and for being here. So you were, I came in when I think Catherine or somebody was asking about uh, doing these studies in other model systems. Uh, aren't there already 
many instances in which humans have been affected and their subsequent offspring, just several generations, people are still seeing effects. For example, I'm from India and there was a gas tragedy in uh, 1984 in the city of Bhopal in Madhya Pradesh, where uh, Union Carbide, I think it belongs to DuPont Company, I could be wrong, uh, but Union Carbide's uh, a pesticide plant result, uh, there was an accident it resulted in the death of 3,000 people in a single day. And uh, even today, generations after that are still feeling the effects uh, because children are still born with uh, brain defects, etc., etc. This is definitely inherited. So maybe it could be a good, uh, could be a, good is a wrong word because it's a, it's a bad thing that happened there. But that offers an opportunity to examine those people and do a genetic uh, you know, uh, uh, genome sequencing and find out uh, where the mutations have been carried over from their parents. Um, I can back channel you the uh, the articles related to that incident. Oh yeah, that's that's definitely. I haven't really looked at this accident, but uh, currently we are also working with some other kind of. Um, source of the DNA damage to the father, but I'm not sure if that will be a similar effect, but I mean, um, I don't know whether in that accident was also the similar mechanism because, you know, different kind of uh, the damage or stress happened in the parental generation already known they can be transgenerationally inherited mostly from the mother, uh, from the father is mainly from the DNA damage. Not sure if that is a similar thing that uh, in this accident, but if so, it will definitely worse to look at the genetic data from the offspring to see if they have shown the similar structure change, like what I see in the in the C. elegans in the worm. If that's so, I mean that that will be a very interesting project um, to continue. I mean, our our work also provides some potential therapeutic approach. Uh, for example, we can use the histone uh, H1 or heterochromatin inhibitor uh, treatment to see whether it can prevent the offspring um, effect. I think um, maybe that would be uh, future future work to look forward. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'm trying to put some links in the chat section. Yeah, thank you. Oh, yeah, I will have a look. Yeah, and the the good thing about um, recording this on Clubhouse is that the, the chat, when you click on the recording on the replay, uh, the chat links will still be there and the chat and, and also, um, you know, all the links and everything will stay active that you can just click on them. So, um, so yeah, if, um, if anyone wants to check out resources afterwards again, um, you, you will see them in the replay. So thank you, Parth, for that interesting suggestion. Okay, great. So, um, thank you everyone again. And of course, yes, uh, well. Catherine, I'll just add uh, one more, couple more points. So it was one of the most horrible disasters that happened because the Union Carbide Company, uh, which is based in the U.S., it was a subsidiary in the in India. They immediately tried to dissociate themselves from that accident, but they are the ones who caused it. 
so the there was a several uh, there was a large scale uh, public protest and uh, the court proceedings went on the i think the company's uh, main head warren anderson i think that's his name he immediately fled the country and it it took a long uh, court dealing to uh, settle the uh, uh, claims and even then they were given i think a paltry 400 plus million dollars which is nothing compared to the amount of damages they caused so we, it's still the victims have not been given justice so you know it's it's, a, it's something that people should know and and as in a significant way the then indian government was also responsible for it because they did not take adequate measures to bring justice or uh, you know give due compensation to the victims thank you yeah thank you for sharing the story um this is yeah this is um a really sad real world example of um humanity not doing a good job protecting humanity and um yeah i i hope uh that people get the compensation they they should get um so and um so again thank you um you know, for your presentation and um i'm really um yeah i i thank you also for mentioning that your um uh, in the future uh, therapeutics will come out of this uh work that is very uh promising and um thank you so much for doing this work and for staying <laughs> on top of it and being persistent again <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for the invitation. It was really a great experience. I mean, I have never done that. It was really, really fun. Oh, Thank that's you. so great. Uh, we are always happy to hear when the speakers that we invite are also happy. That's the best uh, combination. So great and enjoy the rest of your week. And everyone, thank you so much. And uh we have our next room on thursday at 4 p.m est with professor peribon and also the group um talking about dual polarity voltage neuroimaging it's like a new way of doing precise neuroimaging uh, technique with uh, results which will be really interesting and the the group will be coming so um and Again, this was a wonderful discussion. Thank you, everyone. And now close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye.